This is Jake Hutchinson, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. I think the worst thing that can come from an avalanche accident is nobody learning from it. Caught in an avalanche and surviving was almost like a badge of honor for a while. Um, and then it was a don't talk about it, you know, like this doesn't happen. Welcome to episode 3.3 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, I'm wrapping up the fall interview tour. I've had some great conversations with so many great folks within our community and i want to thank those individuals for taking the time out of their schedules to to share the stories of their career paths stories of near misses and just news with the community i'll be having a few more interviews lined up in the next couple weeks as i travel to whitefish montana for the northern rocky snow and avalanche workshop i'll be speaking there and I'll be interviewing John Sykes. John is a MSU grad student, um, sort of practitioner turned researcher. And then I'll be talking to Ted Steiner. Ted Steiner is the head of the Avalanche Safety Program for the uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad that runs through that, the Flathead Valley there. Um, and so that's going to be a really interesting conversation, I think, talking about forecasting for the railroad industry so if you have any questions for those folks um, those interviews are coming up this week send them my way and I'll work them into the interview in addition I'm hoping to tie in with Roger Atkins when he's in Bend for Bend Saw which is the following week November 10th um, so that's that's a that'll be a great interview if I can make that happen please send along any questions you may have for for him I'm still taking submissions from your experiences at ISSW. If you were over in Innsbruck, reach out to me to find out how you can share your experience with the greater community. Like I've said before, it could be your favorite presentation or poster or conversation they've had with somebody while over there. I'll be rolling these out as they come in, or if I get a whole slew of them, I'll put a compilation together. This episode will highlight the ISSW experience from Greg Cunningham. Greg is a ski patroller and avalanche forecaster at Kirkwood, along with being a heli ski guide and alpine guide in the summer. Thanks for your submission, Greg. Here he is. My name is Greg Cunningham, and I work as a forecaster, ski patroller, and mountain guide. I was super grateful to attend the 2018 ISSW in Innsbruck, Austria on behalf of Kirkwood Mountain Resort. Over the course of five days, we attended over a hundred different talks, looked at at least 50 different posters, and had countless great conversations from people all around the world about all things snow. The Alps are a major laboratory for climate change studies, and as a result, many talks included climate change as a central theme and how avalanche professionals are going to deal with more wet and transitional snow problems. So much information sharing, it was hard for me to narrow it down to just one or two talks. As usual, I found some of the talks about decision making to be super interesting and relevant to what I do. I chose to highlight two consecutive talks in this short submission. In the first talk, Laura McGuire presents her work 
on exploring the cognitive work of avalanche professionals in a Canadian ski resort. In her opening statement, she says, avalanche forecasting is hard and many of the models we use are oversimplified. This statement got my attention. McGuire goes on to say, policies and procedures can never really account for all the variability in the real world. Decision-making frameworks, checklists, and conceptual models of risk assessment are too simple and do not consider the dynamic on-the-fly decision-making that pros do every day. Checklists work well for recreationalists, but pros are paid to make difficult decisions. I think in short, this study highlights that we know very little about the intuitive decision-making process that most pros rely on day-to-day -to, -day to make some of their most important decisions. She suggests that cognitive systems engineering methodologies may be used to gain insight into this intuition-based decision-making process. I thought this study was particularly insightful considering that McGuire worked with just one crew at just one resort. She says moving forward, she'd like to work with more complex operations as well as with guiding and heli skiing operations. Drew many parallels in this talk to my work as an operations forecaster and also as a heli ski guide. When the blades are turning, things happen very fast and guides rely heavily on quick, intuitive-based decision-making strategies that may be hard to articulate but are still remarkably effective. The following talk complemented this first one really well. Marcus Landro did an analysis of factors used by pros in existing decision-making frameworks for avalanche terrain. Marcus says we work in a wicked learning environment. In his study, he found that guides collect all the information available in the trip planning phase, but when they get out in the field, they weigh their experience and intuition more heavily than the policy or the checklist. He says, stop oversimplifying very complex processes. Pros rely heavily on intuition-based decision-making. I enjoyed both of these presentations because I believe that they challenge the current way of thinking. The way of thinking that we fit nicely into these human factors and heuristics and that simple models and best practices can be put into place to help people make better decisions. Good intuitive decision-making comes from time and experience, plain and simple. All right, thanks, Greg, for the submission. Appreciate it. want everybody to think about checking out Ten Barrel Brewing's new mountain pack. They've teamed up with three of their favorite ski hills. Uh, that's Mount Bachelor, Sun Valley, and Sugar Bowl to provide collaborative brews in this new variety pack that's sure to be a tailgate hit at the end of a great ski day. Ten Barrel has also come out with their first ski and snowboard film called Pray for Snow. They'll showcase this film on tour through the middle of December. Take a look at the schedule on their website and check out Pray for Snow. Especially check it out if you're in Denver on November 2nd or Bend on November 10th when they'll have a big old throwdown at their brew pubs featuring the film along with live music, free waxes, swag giveaways and of course plenty of beer oh yeah i didn't mention the best part proceeds from the film tour go directly to protect our winters so check that out uh we're still in the midst of the snow and avalanche workshop season tag at the avalanche hour podcast in your social media posts of your experiences at these events let me know where you're at while reviewing this episode, I realized how I might sound when I mentioned ski patrollers getting pulled into being a lifer patroller. I want you all to know that I have the utmost respect for the work that patrollers do, whether they're doing it for one year, five years, ten years, or your whole snow and avalanche career. So please take what I say with a grain of salt. Hopefully I don't offend anybody. All right, all right. Enough blabbing from me. It's time to hit up Jake Hutchinson hailing from the Wasatch Mountains. Jake and I cover some tough subjects facing our community these days, um, and I, I thank Jake for digging deep and, and talking about some of these. So without further ado, here we go with Jake Hutchinson. Jake Hutchinson, thanks for sitting down Absolutely. this afternoon. 
uh, glad we can make it happen. You've been on on the list to get you on the podcast for a while here, so I'm stoked to be back in Salt Lake and and uh, be able to sit down with you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, funny how you the random comment on social media just connects the dots at the right moment, huh? Yeah, sometimes that's all it takes. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and just give us a bit of a background about where you're from, um, some of your roles within the snow and avalanche community and some of the other stuff that you're into and have done in the past. Yeah. So, um, Jake Hutchinson, like you said, I grew up here in the Wasatch. Um, my dad was a, uh, volunteer, volunteer slash part-time ski patroller. So I kind of grew up in the, in the ski patrol world, a little rug rat running around park West and, um, got exposed to, um, you know, like like when Rick Wyatt skied the Grand Teton, he was ski patrolling my dad. And so that was like my first, like, oh, wow, big mountains and people doing rad stuff. And, um, you know, high school, I actually, uh, I guess part of the, like the rebel phase, I quit skiing and started snowboarding. Early days, you know, you had to take a test to show you could turn and stop both directions. Then you gave you, they gave you little punch cards. So you could actually get on the ski lift and, I think it was Brighton, Park West, and Alta were actually the three places you could ride a snowboard originally, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, went away to the Marine Corps and came back, and um, I was going to school, couldn't figure out what to do. I got a job on the trail crew at Park West for the fall, clearing trails, brush, whatever, random odd jobs. And as it got closer and closer to ski season, I started bugging the patrol director. I had actually volunteered one season. So I had my medical and all that stuff. Started bugging the patrol director about getting a job and he kept blowing me off and he'd send me down to the parking lot guy or the, the lift ops guy. Didn't want a young kid. Cause back then, you know, there was one or two ski patrol jobs at each resort. It wasn't like now where there's, they're fighting to find workers. You, you fought for the jobs and, um, you know, honestly, he wasn't going to hire me. And right before this, right before the season started that year, one of the people he had hired um, had a mountain bike accident in Moab and had some pretty serious fractures and wasn't going to be able to ski. And I got offered a job to ski patrol the day before the season started. Um, my plan was a patrol for a year or two and then get serious about school. And um, 21 years later, I never got serious about school and finally hung up my ski patrol cross. Um, 10 11 i which you know is a great landmark because i don't know if you were still here in 10 11 but mm-hmm. that was that was an epic that was a good winner yeah um you know somewhere along the way i had started teaching for aai in the late 90s rod newcomb had called me up and asked me if i wanted a job and i was like my first thought was are you sure you got the right guy um luckily he saw something in me and um in 10 11 you know, AI had kind of at that point, Don and Sarah and Don had, had purchased it and they kind of told me if I was ever going to quit ski patrol and they, they put me to work and I took them seriously. A bunch of things just kind of came together and I left. And so from then till about a year ago, I pretty much filled my winters with teaching avalanche courses, sometimes up to 21 or 22 courses a year. Um, and uh, still work for them, um, but I'm a little more selective about when and what I teach because um, I got a different full-time job. I've kind of shifted gears and ventured into the fitness realm and working at a high-end semi-private gym here in Salt Lake, um, Jim Jones. You know, I've also done a bunch of stuff. I was on, I was a dog handler and served as the vice president of WBR for a bunch of years. I um, I sit on the board for A3. Um currently wearing a couple hats there i'm hoping that with this next board meeting i can i can pass a few of those along to some other folks and get some fresh blood in there but um pretty excited about being the membership rep and and started really pour some energy into growing the a3 membership primarily amongst patrollers so that's kind of my my journey now nice that's awesome so uh how long how long were you at the canyons or I guess it was Park West and then the Canyon. Yeah, right? so I started working there full-time the last year it was Park West. Um, and then it got bought by a conglomerate of folks um, who were actually running Park West those last few years. And they bought it from the owner and changed the name to Wolf Mountain. 
Um, that lasted three years. Um, it was kind of a, <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone talks about Park West being, being kind of bottom of the barrel for money, but Wolf Mountain was even worse. Hmm. And then American Skiing bought it and turned it into the Canyons, I think in 96 or 97. And I, you know, was part of that whole massive expansion, um, all those years, um, you know, and really that expansion, um, being in charge of doing all the avalanche mapping and figuring out the routes and, and figure out how we're going to do all that stuff. That's really what, um, I think more than anything brought my understanding of avalanches and snow up to the forefront because there was no room for mistakes. You know, you had to just like dive in and, and tackle it. And I was fortunate to have some really, really good, mentors and coworkers and and folks on patrol that we made it happen so what did it look like before that before that mapping project and, and i mean did they have any sort of mitigation program there? so we did you know park west it's actually um you know still i think some of the most complex um terrain snowpack conditions exist in the old park west side um but it changed the face we went from a lots of small kind of intricate slide paths that had a lots of um, interesting wind loading and other stuff to some much bigger open faces and bowls and um, cliff areas and change. We changed some aspects and um, changed elevations, you know, that by the time we were done, we started at 1200 acres. I think it was 4,700 before it finally merged in park city and the canyons became one, but you know, I, I my brain is getting old, but um, we went from like, 20 routes that we had on the mountain to over a hundred wow. um, in that time frame. Um, added a bunch of avalanches, all sorts of things, you know, you had to get really creative. And I think the other thing is it cut, it cut people's teeth really quick. Cause all of a sudden the routes that in the old days, you know, when I started, those were the only the senior guys with the most experience ran those routes. All of a sudden those were getting done by guys with two, three, four years experience because we knew a lot about those areas and those of us with more experience were going off in a new terrain where we had no history, you know, and mm -hmm. it's like the first time you start throwing bombs and stuff, it's, you have no idea what's going to happen. And you know, the way that all those things evolve over the years, like I go up there now and I still talk with some of those guys in the avalanche department and you know, the way they run routes now so different from what we originally mapped because they've, they've figured out things so much better than, than what we had. Cause we had no, no information to go off of. Sure. No history and didn't even know the physicalities of, of some of the, the paths probably. Yeah. I mean, the other reality is in the, the late mid nineties, that's before backcountry skiing really exploded. Right. So my first year's backcountry skiing, you know, we would go out there on the job because park West actually had a permit to expand out there at one point, they just never had the money to do it. So part of that was we had to do snow studies going out there on skinny skis and leather boots and, most of that stuff was unskiable because very few people were strong enough to actually ski that terrain and that gear, you know? And so mm. the powder birds had, had done a little work out there that was in their permit area years and years ago. And so we got some info from them, some photos and some other stuff, but most of it was anecdotal. Like we didn't really have any legitimate avalanche history for most of that terrain. Mm. Well, it seems really cool that you've been able to take your, your patrol background and, and, uh, a long patrol career and, and stay in the snow and avalanche world. Um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of get sucked into being a lifer patroller. And, and um, uh, so I think it's nice that you're, you're still in the industry, but, but in, in some different roles and wearing some different hats. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest. Like that was my, once I've, once I settled into like being a patroller and that was the life and the career, I mean, that's where I thought I was going to stay forever. I, I, I envisioned myself at some point becoming a mountain manager and working my way up through the ranks and, and staying in that business. And, you know, just like I said, a, a bunch of things all at once convinced me that that wasn't where I wanted to be anymore. And, and I'm fortunate. I'm still um, on the very, 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 very part-time Alta snow safety crew. So I, I go in and throw some shots with those guys once or twice a year. And, um, so I still keep a, I still keep a foot a little bit in that world, but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's fun to get away, you know, and work with big eyed operations and, um, and see other snowpacks and do other things. You know, I, I forgot to mention, I worked in Glacier National Park forecast for the going the sun road for a while. And, 
And that was really um, a choice to immerse myself in wet snow because I mostly had avoided wet snow most of my career. You know, I grew up in the Wasatch. No one, no one goes corn skiing in the Wasatch. There's not, there's not legit corn skiing here anyway. And so it's like, oh, I'm going to go up there and all of a sudden, you know, deal with avalanches and paths. There's nothing in the Wasatch even close to the size of what we deal with in Glacier. And that was just an amazing plus. Plus, you ski to them with wolverines and grizzly bears when they're waking up from hibernation, which is a whole added, um, you know, risk or, or off excitement. Factor. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's nothing. You know, I've been around a lot of bears a lot of years in Alaska and Wyoming, various places. The bears in Glacier waking up from hibernation are really intimidating because you are the only thing that looks like food right. <laughs> anywhere out there. So, um, yeah, it's nerve wracking for sure. That place is amazing. We we went up there in July, and um, I I sat down and interviewed Eric Peitch, um, who I'm sure you worked with. Yep. And uh, I was blown away by some of the paths that that go over or are adjacent to the Sun Road. I mean, yeah. Massive, massive scale. Yeah. There's I can't really think of any places in the lower 48 that consistently have slide paths that can run more than 5,000 vertical feet. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just not a lot of mountain ranges in the lower 48 that have that kind of relief, let alone avalanche pass can run. And then you put the road dead center of those things for the most part. And so, you know, like a D1 wet loose avalanche on the, going to the sun road really quickly puts 60 to 80 feet on the, on the, of snow on the road, um, you know, 100, 200 feet wide and then carries over the road for another 1,000 or 2,000 vertical feet. It just, it's just a completely different world. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was really fortunate because people can't get in there very well um, in the early season. You know, once it's later in the year and they start to plow and it's open on the weekends, people get up there and start skiing. But when we get up there in um, late April, early May, it's still winter conditions up there and um, it's game on, you know, that terrain is, is, is unforgiving as you can, as you've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so you worked for the park service for what is that? Is that like a two month gig? Yeah, it's uh, I can't, it's one of those temporary, you know, not to exceed jobs, I think right. 1039 or whatever it is. But, um, the reality is it's completely dependent on weather conditions. You know, um, the first year I was there, the sun came out, it cranked up to like 90 degrees and, um, all the snow melted and we got to the pass really fast. The last year I was there, we had a lot of late season snow and some, um, large avalanche cycles that, um, shut us down or slowed us down. I was there almost till July. So, Mm. um, yeah, it just really depends on what, what's going on up there, but it's, it's unique, you know, it's a, it's a different perspective into an, into an avalanche problem that I just had never, I mean, usually by the time things get wet here, I'm mountain biking or riding motorcycles or whatever it is, something that doesn't involve ski boots. Sure. Yeah. It seems like a valuable experience to get in a different snowpack. Um, Jake, I, I, uh, I just read, I guess they've been out for a little bit, but you, you've been doing some writing for Ascent Backcountry Journal. And uh, I really enjoyed reading a couple articles that you wrote, I think, last season. Um, one in particular is called Guilt. And um, I commend you for putting yourself out there and, and writing about some of these tough subjects. And I was, willing if, I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, you know, it's a, um, it's a tough, you know, that article stems from an inbounds avalanche accident we had in 2007 that... Um, stands as to me the best and worst day of my career because on one hand my patrol all came together and we saved the young man's life that otherwise would have died as well um the other hand is a young man um who had a young child and a new wife lost his life that day and um it was in bounds and it was on an open slope and um you know there's a lot of uh lot of beating yourself up and questioning everything that you did. And then there's lawsuits and there's all these other things that, um, you, you go through as a, as a result of that. And, um, for me, I come from a lot of places, I guess you would say are, you know, very macho or testosterone filled, lots of tough guys, lots of, 
you know, get over it. And, um, for a long time, that's how I dealt with a lot of that stuff, you know, and I realized, um, through writing that article and some other stuff over the years, like there's a whole bunch of other trauma that ski patrollers deal with, you know, um, people die skiing every day in this country. It's, you know, gravity and snow and speed are dangerous. And, um, I'm sure you saw it in your time. There is gnarly trauma that occurs on a ski hill. You know, it's not all just ACLs and shoulders and, you know, all that stuff adds up, um, over the years. And, um, I do a lot of work or I am connected to a lot of military folks, um, you know, and, and the last, I don't know, it was five or six years. PTSD is a big deal in that community, obviously with all the suicides and all the other stuff. And, um, I got to give Dave Richards from Alta credit. Um, Dave kind of was the first one to open his mouth and, um, made me realize that I had been, um, not dealing with my own shit, so to speak, you know, like I just kept putting it away and, and it, um, it manifested itself in alcoholism, um, not taking care of myself, um, doing lots of what I would now in hindsight call stupid things because I just had not dealt with this. And I, I look back at, um, you know, the events after the day of that avalanche and basically someone telling me that I either needed to put my boots on and go back to work or I needed to go sit in my office and cry. I couldn't do both. And so I put my boots on and I went back to work and I just put all that stuff away. And, you know, it was, wasn't until I really wrote that article that I really finally, I guess, forgave myself and was honest with myself about, you know, what my role and all that was and wasn't. And the fact that, um, you know, all this stuff that we deal with as patrollers, as first responders, um, it just accumulates if you don't do something to take care of it, you know, and, and whether that's talking about or whatever, but for me, all that accumulation became self-destructive behaviors. And I, and I really wrote that article because I think the learning point for me in hindsight was that, my experience was that patrols didn't deal with traumatic incidents very well. Um, my experience was buy a bunch of beer, go sit in the locker room, have, for us, it was our local medical doc would sit in the room and kind of facilitate a conversation that, you know, was poorly facilitated. That wasn't his area of specialty and B would just, you know, um, devolve downhill into a drunken, ski patrol party where generally one or more people end up really getting their feelings hurt. And, um, then you show up to work hungover and you just do it again and do it again. And I think that there's a, um, there's a drinking culture of ski patrolling that, um, I really believe is, um, a coping mechanism for not having the right tools to deal with all the other stuff that patrollers deal with on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I got sucked into it. I was part of it. And, you know, I, I wrote that article to tell people, Hey, you know, like this is real, like, and it can screw your life up bad, you know, if you don't take care of it. And lucky for me, I ran into some things that kind of helped me claw out of it before I really went off the, went off the edge with it. What were some of those things? You know, um, it's interesting. I came out of the Marine Corps. I started ski patrolling. One of the things that I found in ski patrolling was camaraderie. You know, people ask me all the time if I miss patrolling. Like, no, I don't. I miss people. I miss, I miss hanging out. I miss having that community. And when I left patrolling and went to teaching full time, I was kind of like a free agent. I was traveling a lot. I was all over the place. You know, yeah, I was teaching patrollers and stuff, but you know, it's being Breckenridge one night and Telluride the next and back here for a couple of days and then off to Alaska and all over. And I just had lost that sense of community. Um, and I had a, I had an incident, um, in Mexico, um, in the ocean that I finally realized like I needed to turn a corner. I was going to die. Um, and the gym, I had this kind of standing invite to go to Jim Jones. I'd heard all about it and, I just had decided like, oh, I wasn't fit enough. That wasn't my thing. And I went in there 
And um, I got my ass absolutely kicked the first, I don't know, year in there. But what I found was a community of people that were like me that all came from different backgrounds that had their own baggage. And all they really cared about was that we all worked hard and, and picked each other up and got better, you know, and for everybody that level was different. And, and so I found that sense of community again, which helped me realize that, um, all these other self-destructive behaviors I was involved in, I weren't sustainable. You know, I had to start making choices and I didn't need to be the last man standing at the party. And I didn't need to be the hardest whiskey drinking guy in the room and, and all that stuff that I, I think I built that persona in my head. That was part of what, you know, a, a tough old avalanche guy should be, but it's all bullshit, right? It's, it's just, um, it's just me avoiding all the other real issues underneath. And so now, I'm, you know, it's, it's taken a while, but I'm at a point now where I can go to a, a avalanche function or a ski patrol party and I can have one beer and not feel like I have to out drink everybody. And I have to be in the middle of every conversation. I have to be part of all these things. And, um, you know, I'm also just fine not going and not having a beer and not doing all that stuff. I'll go for a run or I'll go do all this other stuff that's way better for me. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's just, again, again, it's a series of things that clicked at the right moment. And, um, I made, I made a good choice. Uh, what was, what was open to me, but I think that, you know, my whole point for that article was to hopefully help really patrol and I think guide operations are similar having having done some had some conversations with some of the heli ski guide operations that have had some troubles the last few years like they need to have better tools to take care of the people that are doing all the hard work out there and um and the people doing the hard work have to like be kinder to themselves about you know you don't have to suck it up and stiff upper lip and do all this stuff because because we're all human and it all affects us different ways and it doesn't make you any less of a good person or whatever you're trying to be. What do you think are some, some tools that would help these patrols? Cause like, you know, I mean, I've, I've gone through my, sh a, a bit of traumatic stuff in my life, you know, not a ton by any means, but lost a fellow fire firefighter on my crew. Um, and I remember we went through, a process you know the federal government had us go through some critical incident stress management debriefs and stuff and i could not stand having these people come into this conference room and talk to the 20 my 20 brothers and i about what what had just gone on you know so like i know those tools exist and i think they are helpful um and the more reflecting that i did on that of course uh it was helpful but I mean, besides that, what do you think are some good coping mechanisms for these organizations? You know, I think I think that's one thing. You know, like having the right professionals in the room, I think is a is is the starting point, right? Like I, I, I think you have to do that organizationally, and you have to have those people come in. And I'm with you. Like I, I couldn't stand that stuff, you know. But it always felt to me like often you do this meeting as debrief and then it was just over and you went back to work the next day. And I, I will, I will fall back on my buddy, Johnny Primo, who's a um, former green beret, bunch of combat deployments. A lot of his friends died in his arms and, and a lot of bad stuff. And, you know, like he and I were talking about the, the 22 vet suicide thing. And, you know, he's like, he's like, look, man, all people got to do is talk to each other. You know, he's like, you got to be there for when your bro calls you and needs to talk in the middle of the night. And, and, um, and I think that's a big part of it is like these things would happen and then it just like push it under the rug and like, oh, it's over, it's done, get mm -hmm. over it and go away. And like, that doesn't help anybody. And, and everyone needs a different level of connection there. Um, you know, some people, um, you know, that they're going to open up in that room full of people and tell you everything right down to their, you know, most intimate details and other people don't want to talk at all. And I think that that's, um, I was one of the guys that didn't want to talk much, you know, 
I've always felt like I had this role as a patrol director, as a snow safety director. Like I had to be the one that was um, infallible. Like I couldn't show weakness. Like I had to take care of everybody. And in my head, the way I took care of everybody was to, to be tougher than everybody, to shoulder everything for everybody. And I think in ways that was hurtful for people that worked for me. And it certainly was hurtful for me because they felt like I was um, unemotional and unaffected by these things. And, and that's, you know, the reality is, is, is the exact opposite. And I think, so I think, you know, lines of communication, I also think like, like I've been there, I've called the helpline and talking to someone who has no idea, no firsthand experience of, of what you've just gone through. I don't find very helpful either, you know, and, and, and I know they mean well and they're trained and, and all this stuff, but you know, like, like, you and I having a beer and talking about, you know, specifics like, you know, talking about, you know, Matt's accident before we started this. Like, to me, that stuff is more genuine and helpful than, um, you know, some some person on the end of a phone line that's that's going through talking points with me, trying to trying to talk me off the edge or help me out, whatever it is. And I, I think that, you know, my experience was a really informal or I wouldn't even call it a critical incident debrief plan. It was just kind of a call up, call up our doc and we'd have a little thing and a little get together. And I think that formalizing it's a good first step and, and making sure everyone actually understands like what tools and resources are available. Um, and I think that one of the good things that came out of, you know, some of those 22 vet programs is there's lists of cell phone numbers, Right. Like I put my own number on there. I mean, I come from a different era of the military than, than what those guys are serving right now. But yeah, man, if some, some guy wants to call me up in the middle of the night with a gun in his mouth and wants to just talk about that stuff, I'm, yeah, if I can help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and so that's, I think just, just creating the network and, um, you know, letting patrollers, guides, forecasters all understand that, that, they're not the first person this has happened to. And there's other people that have found ways to manage it and, and creating that network so that they can reach out. You know, I could tell you when I, when we had the red pine shoots accident, the first person that called me was Titus case out you know, at the time. He was the snow safety director at Alta and um, he'd been there. The next person that called me was Liam Fitzgerald, two guys who were big mentors to me, who had helped me along in my development as a, as a forecaster and professional, like, those two phone calls, I don't remember what they said, but what I remember is that they both understood what it was like to be there because they both had inbounds avalanche accents that involved fatalities. And so there was an immediate, um, you know, thankfulness, like, oh, you're not alone. Like the other people have done this and, and you're going to be okay. You're going to get through it. And, and the other part is you sit, you know, we went through this horrible trial and, and you sit there. I mean, the the deceased kid's mom or wife and mom were no farther from me than you are right now in the courtroom. And, and, you know, those, um, those plaintiff's attorneys are really good at trying to dehumanize you, you know, like make it look like I'm just some skeep chiller. didn't care that Jesse Williams died in this avalanche. I didn't, I didn't care. I was just trying to get my job open or my, my ski resort open, do my job because I was only interested in making money and helping the ski resort make money. And, you know, the opposite couldn't be more true. I've, you know, I was the, I was the first union president. I was about taking care of my patrollers, not, not taking care of the corporate bottom line. I mean, I had a responsibility to do that, but you know, like, but they really, you know, and I think some of that stuff, some of the trial really made that worse. I think that was the other thing that happened with us is we couldn't talk about it because of the trial. You know, this mm-hmm. whole thing looms over you. It's like, you can't share this. Like that's, that's confidential information or you can only talk about this when the lawyer's in the room or, and so it just, it, it kind of, um, perpetuates the, um, the problem when you, when you get into that situation and, you know, and not faulting our legal system, but that's, that's a downside of everyone suing everybody for everything. Sure. Well, I think, you know, what you said about networking, I think that's a good second step. And I think the first step is just awareness, you know, like we're talking about it right now. You're writing articles about it. There was an article in the Avalanche Review about PTSD last season. Um, 
where a lot of people weighed in. Um, I guess Dave, Dave had a big part in that as well. Um, so this is a real problem within our community. And, and I think you're absolutely right that this kind of patrol culture has, has not dealt with it at all or, or very little, um, until now. So hopefully, hopefully the awareness and then, and then, like you said, some networking and, and bringing about the right tools for, for different organizations to help deal with this, um, important, important issue there for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask if you would share, you wrote another article, um, called ritual that I found really, you know, totally different topic than what we've been talking about, but I thought that was a great article. I was hoping you could share some of your tips and tricks seems like you have a definite routine when you go out into the backcountry, whether it's for work, forecasting, or, or getting ready to teach an avalanche course or just to go skiing. Um, and it seems like you have a, a great process that is, has worked well for you. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually um, finishing up kind of a second part to that nice. whole thing right now. And um, Yeah, I think, you know, I learned it in the military, I think, and, and it's this silly um, – it's not silly. It's this phrase, like you fight, like you train, um, using the gym, like you're always going to default to what you know best. Right. And if you are, um, inconsistent and lazy and, um, kind of oblivious to what's going on when, when things start changing, that's what you're going to default to. Or when the stress level goes up, that's what you're going to default to. And, um, you know, so I really approach, you know, I, I ski tour alone a lot, you know, cause I think that's a other, I don't know if it's good or bad, but that's a byproduct of teaching avalanche courses a lot is like, Oh, I got a day off and I want to go ski. I don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to talk. I don't want to do all these things. And it's, it's not cause I am antisocial. It's just, I want to break from, you know, I, I joke around like, like teaching avalanche courses is like taking six of your um, newest friends ski touring every single day, you know, like, like some of them have never put skins on and some of them never done a kick turn and some of them Dom patrolled superior before they showed up for class in the morning, whatever it is, you know, it's a huge mix, but so yeah, I find that one of the ways that I prevent myself from becoming a statistic is to have my, have these checks and balances with myself to catch myself when I deviate from, from the norms, you know, and I, and I, I'm painfully aware that I am not infallible in the mountains. I've had my fair share of close calls. And so, you know, using these various things, like trying to keep my head engaged in what's going on, it's like, you'll never see me in the mountains in the snow with headphones on because I just feel like that takes away one of my really valuable senses, you know, and I'm just, you know, you take my hearing away, you put music in my head. I'm not focused on what's going on. And everyone's like, well, what do you need to hear? And it's, like even the change in the sound of the way the snow is underneath your skins going uphill, you know, it's like you might not feel that crust, but also you start hearing it break or, you know, whatever, whatever that subtle changes might be the difference. I mean, that might be the one clue that helps you make the right decision that day. And so I think that getting yourself into a ritual, you know, I pack my pack the same way every day. I have two packs One's bigger than the other for cold weather or longer tours. And the gear's all the same in there, you know, so I'm not looking for things. You know, my, my rescue gear is always on the outside of my outside pocket of my pack. I'll only buy packs with a, with a, um, specific rescue pocket. I want all that gear there. Um, you know, little things like that. Um, paying attention to drinking water. I actually have an app on my phone now that reminds me that I haven't had enough water to drink today because I'm really bad about just suffering through and then paying the price for it later. And so, um, you know, I, I just try to build these different rituals in and, um, call them checklists, whatever, you know, um, but they help, you know, I ask myself the same questions before I ski slopes, try to, try to make sure I'm not using information to my advantage that I actually should be using to make better decisions or different decisions. You know, I, you know, my favorite question is I ask students this all the time when they tell me that we're going to ski a slope and it's like, okay, everyone take off your beacon and shovel and put it in a pile and we'll ski. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And it's like, well, if you are making decisions cause you got that stuff and you think it's going to make a difference to the outcome, 
then you don't belong here. You know, I mean, yeah. Do I, do I ski with that stuff? Absolutely. You know, I recognize that I'm human and I've made bad decisions, but you know, you should be confident enough in your assessment that you're willing to do that stuff without, you know, the other question I ask is what are my friends going to say to the newspaper that my mom's going to read tomorrow after I do something dumb and die in an avalanche, you know? Um, Cause there's, you know, I think it's funny. Like everyone talks about the snowpack being so complicated, but it's really not. If you, if you take a few minutes and just stop and look, it'll tell you almost everything you want to know. Sometimes you got to look at more than one place the biggest question is, how's the snow, how's that dynamic of this, you know, the weak layer, the slab, the weather, the terrain, how, how is me as the variable going to change how that whole relationship exists, you know, and, and, um, it might be for the, it might be no change. It might be, it might be for the worse. It's probably not going to be for the better. You know, I don't, I don't think you can improve the snow conditions by skiing. Um, but you know, you just got to be willing to look. And by having habits and rituals, um, you look for the right things or you try to look for the right things all the time. And it sounds like you hold yourself accountable, right? I try. Yeah. yeah. Like, like I, I mean, I try to be present in the place when I'm in the mountains, right? Like going up the skin track is not the time to think about the fight you have with your girlfriend or the bills you got to pay or all the things you got to do, you know, rushing down the mountain you know, you could go through Ian Cammons, Ian McCammons facets list over and over and over. And like almost all of those at some point with your brain wandering from, from the, the present, you can start falling into any of those traps, you know? And, um, <clears throat> yeah, accountability is, for me is huge in the gym and the, in the mountains. Um, I have, not encountered anyone that was just walking down the street and an avalanche just happened to them. You know, like lightning strikes are things that just happen to people. Um, avalanches aren't like we make choices to be in terrain. And, um, maybe those choices are, um, you, they're informed and maybe you're ignorant, but you still made a choice to be there. You know, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody grabbed you from my front lawn out there and whisked you to the mountaintop and threw you into a slide path and, and said, good luck. You, know, you got there somehow and somewhere along the way you made a choice to get there or you followed someone to get there, which is a choice, right? Without choices. And so being accountable, it, you know, it's, um, I got a lot of flack for being really critical of the, um, the Grizzly Gulch near Miss a bunch of years ago. Um, I happen to be there. Like you can see my group of students digging snow pits in that video. Um, and I'm really glad it didn't end differently, but you know, there was a lot of, um, this could happen to anyone talk. And it's like, no, those are three professional skiers or photographers who knew the forecast and made a choice to go into the exact slope that they were told to stay out of. And it's like, that can't just happen to anyone. That happens to people that choose to ignore information or use it in ways to justify what they're doing. And, you know, they're really fortunate that other people were there to bail them out of that. And, and I think that we have a huge, um, you know, treat everyone with kids gloves problem in this industry. Um, you know, we're really reluctant to assign fault to people. Um, but if you look at the airline industry, for example, if they would look at a, a fatal air accident, they're going to say, you know, the pilot made this mistake, this mistake, this mistake. It's not to crucify the poor guy. It's not to crucify his family is to be honest about what happened so that someone else can learn from that. They can change training. You probably have the same sort of things in fire accidents. I'm assuming like, like I look at, um, a handful of fire wildland fire accidents I've looked at, they're highly critical of decisions that get made up through the chain of command that lead to someone losing their life. And I think that they should be because those become cues and triggers for not making that mistake again. You know, I, I've learned more about staying alive in avalanches by reading snowy torrents than any avalanche class I ever took, mm. you know, like I lock away other people's mistakes in my brain and try to use those as a cue for my own. Do you think there's a, uh, there's a fallacy to being so critical that people aren't willing to come forward and talk about their accidents? So I think, so there's a fine line, right? There's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's a line where if people start being mean spirited in their critique, 
then yeah, then people are going to not want to talk about it. Right. Like, I think that we have a problem. It's a cultural problem in this country that gets bigger than avalanches that, um, people always view critique as negative or insulting or mean spirited. And, um, it's not, you know, if you, if you really want to become better about whatever it is you're doing, you've got to be open to some critique. And I'm, I'm sensitive to it too. And someone tells me I could have done this better or that better. or I should have done that. Yeah. I get defensive and I get upset, but you know, this isn't, this isn't a, um, tie someone to a, to a pole and publicly flog them in the square. This is a, Hey, you know, like you made these mistakes and luckily you're not dead. Like, how can we learn from this? And I look at, um, everybody learned from it. Yeah. I look at like, I take Jamie Pierre's accent, um, a, a few years ago at Snowbird or, um, a couple of high profile accidents. And I think that, um, Craig Patterson's accident, mm. you know, Craig was a good friend of mine. Um, and what did UDOT do? UDOT went in and really carefully assessed where the breakdowns occurred. And they made some serious policy changes so that that accident doesn't happen again. You know, some people might think they went too far. I don't know if they did or they didn't, but they were really objective about assessing it. And it wasn't to beat Craig up or beat up whoever wrote the policies. It was like, hey, this guy's dead. And like, I think the worst thing that can come from an avalanche accident is nobody learning from it. You know, like, like you can't, I can't bring back my friends who have been killed in the snow, but I can use what happened to them as an example to hopefully teach someone else. And, and you can do that without being mean about it, without, without embarrassing someone about it. I mean, I mean, and I'll be the, one of the first avalanche accidents I was involved in in the late nineties, I didn't say anything to anybody because it was a, like, you know, I went through a phase and I don't know if you saw this in ski patrolling where I went through a phase where getting caught in an avalanche and surviving was almost like a badge of honor for a while. Um, and then it was a, don't talk about it. You know, like this doesn't happen. That's another part of ski patrol culture. that's finally starting to change. Like, I think if the skiing public knew how many ski patrollers have close calls or go for big rides in avalanches, they would be freaked out. Like it happens a lot. Um, it's happening less, but you know, you, you, you travel as much as I do and you go and ski patrol locker rooms, you start hearing all the stories and you start hearing all the stuff and it's all hush, hush, hush. Don't talk about it outside this room. It's like, you know, it's a dangerous job. And, um, guys and gals don't get paid a lot of money to make really serious decisions that could cost them their lives or cost someone else their lives. And, and that's part of that whole culture too. Like, like critique doesn't have to be mean spirited. It doesn't have to be hurtful, but it needs to be objective and honest. And sometimes honesty hurts. Right. Yeah, it's, I think that's really well said, Jake. Um, you, you talked earlier about, you know, like we're oftentimes on this fine line of of sometimes you got to cross the line to figure out where it is, I've heard somebody say. Um, so oftentimes we travel on this fine line, and you, you said you've had your share of close calls, and um, oftentimes it's just one decision that's going to make the difference between telling a story in the bar or, you know, having an obituary written about you. Did you care to share any experiences that you've had that, that looking back, they've been big moments of learning for you and you're, you're thankful you're on this side of that line? Yeah. You know, I've had a, I've had a handful. Um, I, I can't, it seems like the longer that you do this, I don't remember the last winter I didn't have someone that I, had, didn't at least know that's died. Um, it's, I can't tell you how many years back it goes now. Um, I think one of the things, and I'm actually writing about this in this article is, um, you gotta maintain a holistic view of what's going on around you because the, the thing I look back on, if I look at it for me, um, my friend Don Sheriff and I um, talk about this a lot. Like we joke, like we can't go backcountry skiing together because we both have the same problem of being overconfident in our forecasts, which can lead you to maybe taking bigger risks than you might 
otherwise take given more of more information, you know? And so, so I look at that expert halo or whatever you want to call it as, as my problem. And often when I've run into problems because I've been so focused on whatever particular widespread problem that there is that I miss something else and it gets me in trouble. Um, you know, I'm so busy looking for the surface floor layer that I miss that wind slab or I miss something else that, that was obvious, but I just wasn't looking for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, if, if I took all my near misses into one big thing, that would be my, my takeaway is that, you know, most of them, I was so focused on one thing that I missed the thing that got me in trouble. And I think that that's a really important thing. Like ski patrollers, like when do ski patrol accidents happen? Early season, because they have a basically a backcountry snowpack that they're not familiar with, or weird storms. You know, and Scotty Savage, who is up at Sawtooth and was at Big Sky Forever, he's got a great quote. You know, when the weather gets weird, the shot placements get weirder. And I think that that's a thing that ski patrollers should always remember. And but backcountry skiers should remember that too. You know, like. Like just because you see this thing here all the time, when the wind blows a different direction or you get heavier snow than you're used to or you went through a longer dry spell than you used to, conditions change. And so don't get don't get so focused on what you're used to or what you think you know. Um, you know, that's really that's the 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 point I'm making in this article is like I paid more attention to what I don't know than what I do know now. Mm-hmm. That's that's well said for sure. I I, I really appreciate you tackling some of these tough subjects and i know it's not easy to talk about and i think the more that people are talking about it the more acceptance we will get from the community about talking about it and there's only going to be it's only going to be good things that come from it i think um and hopefully podcasts such as this and some of the other avalanche related podcasts can become forums for that and forums for for critique in the in the right way so that everybody can learn from other people's accidents and um you know we're all we're all trying to do the same thing out there right have fun yeah, and, and stay I, safe and i think that there's a fundamental change in at least in the mitigation world where <clears throat> as patrols get bigger and ski resorts get more corporate less people do this for a lot of years right and i really truly believe that you cannot replace um operational experience in an in a resort setting like like you have to have a high level of that throughout your ranks or you're gonna eventually get in trouble but for a ton of reasons people don't don't ski patrol for 20 years anymore uh, at least not very many of them do when i started everybody had 10 to 20 years experience um on our patrol and i think that more and more like as as Patrols get younger and less experienced. Stuff like this becomes more and more important because that old crazy skeep troll in the corner that tells you to watch out for that one avalanche that he saw in 1978, you might never see it again, but you might see it the next 10 years in a row. And you're going to go, wow, man, I'm glad that guy put that thought in my head because I never imagined that that could happen. And, and yeah, I think, you know, this, this community as it grows, um, you know, like, social media and podcasts and all these things become tools to help young patrollers, guides, whatever, like connect with what, what you and I had when we started patrolling. And, you know, you just don't see that in most patrols anymore. They're getting younger and younger. And I think that information is really valuable to, to keep people safe. Yeah. Well said. Well, Jake, thanks for taking the time to sit down today. And, uh, I think, uh, really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. You too, man. Thanks for coming by. All right. Cheers. All right, man. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Jake. Like I said earlier in the show, I've got a few more interviews coming up. If you have questions for those interviewees, you can send them my way at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or hit the contact form at www.theavalanchehour.com. Many places in the Western United States received some early snowfall in early October. And I just want to mention that it's, it could be pretty important to keep a mental map of where this snow is hanging in there on high elevation northerly aspects. 
jot down those zones that you ski and, and where you're still seeing that snow before we have the onset of real winter. Um, and just remember those areas are likely going to become areas that have weak basal layers within the snowpack. So take note of that, get out, get up high and, and cruise around the mountains and, and check out your local zones. Music on today's episode was performed by Grizz with permission from the artist and Anatech, made possible by the Creative Commons license and found at freemusicarchive.com. Artwork for the show was created by Mike T. You need artwork done for just about any project, hit up T. He's the man. Once again, many thanks to our sponsors, TAS, Gazex, and 10 Barrel Brewing. We could not do it without you. Really appreciate the support. And thanks to all you, our listeners. Uh, appreciate the support. Appreciate the emails coming in. If you're enjoying the show, if you're hating the show, I want to hear about it. So hit me up once again at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Check out my website, www.theavalanchehour.com. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to your podcast. It does really help. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. My hair good? That's good. My makeup okay? That's awesome.